This is the day in the church calendar called Maundy Thursday. The word Maundy. You know what that is? No. I didn't either until I looked it up. The word Maundy comes from the Latin word Mandatum, which means commandment. So Maundy Thursday really means commandment Thursday. And it's called that because on this day, the Thursday of Holy Week, the Thursday before Good Friday, the day when Jesus was crucified for the sins of His people, Jesus gave what He called a new commandment. We've already had it read to us from John 13.34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, what does he mean by that? What is new about this new commandment to love? What's new is the extreme kind of love that Jesus is commanding. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That is new. Never before had God given a command like that because never before had God shown love like that. He had said before to love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18, all through the Old Testament, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the command to love is not a new command, but the command to love like this is definitely new. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Later on in the same night, Jesus, Jesus repeated this command to love. John 15 is what we read earlier in the service. Is that right? Was that John 15? And Jesus says in John 15, this is my commandment. This is on the same night. This is in the same event. This is in the same room. He says it again. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. So Maundy Thursday is really commandment Thursday. And the commandment is the new commandment to love to exactly the same degree that Jesus Himself has loved. And of course, He defines what He means by that. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So, do you think you can do that? Do you think you can love like that? We want to, don't we? If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, if you know what it means to have Him love you, you want to love like that. You cannot possibly be a Christian if you know nothing of the desire to love like this. But what does that look like? We tend to make um, romantic, glorious, noble pictures of this in our minds. You know, to lay down our life for one another would mean to 
you'd be willing to push me out of the way when the uh, when the truck is, is is zooming down the road with its brakes failing and you'd be able to push me out of the way and take the hit for me? You'd be willing to do that, wouldn't you? You'd be willing to take the bullet, you know, if the bad guy starts shooting, step in front of him? Does it mean that you'd be willing to rush into a burning building and climb up five-step flights of stairs and carry me out, rescue me? Does it mean you'd be willing to um, give me a kidney if I needed it? Those are the kinds of things that we think of. The funny thing about all of those things is that none of them are going to happen, probably. They're easy to think about because none of them are going to happen. And in the end, you look like a hero if you do them. Who are you really loving if you want to look like a hero by loving someone else? By loving someone else. The other problem with those kinds of things is that none of that has anything to do with the kind of thing that Jesus is actually talking about. Because what he's really talking about is the kind of thing that he actually does in John 13. Jesus does something that he commands us to do, and that's what he's talking about. Before we can understand that, think about the, uh, the background of this whole scene that we've read in John 13. Jesus and the disciples have walked from Bethany, a little town outside of Jerusalem, from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's about two miles walk. It's uh, no pavement. You know, the, you know the scene. Dirt roads, no socks and shoes, sandals, basically bare feet, walking on dirt roads. This is why I hate going to the beach. Because you get that grimy, gritty, powdery, nasty dust all over everything. And especially all over your feet. And I can't stand it. I know you can't either, can you, David? Well, this is what life was like for these men. And of course, so once you've gotten to your destination, it's customary for the host to wash the feet of his guests. Now, of course, the host himself would never do that kind of job because it is the job for the lowliest of the lowly servants. Get a picture of this. When John the Baptist was talking about Jesus coming, remember what he said? He says, there's one coming after me. And he says, I'm not even worthy to bend down and unstrap Jesus' sandals in order to wash his feet. John is saying, I am, in comparison to Jesus, I am lower than the lowliest servant you could possibly imagine. The lowliest servant you could possibly imagine is the guy who washes the feet. Who takes the sandals off and washes the feet. But there's a problem in this setup because in this upper room there is no servant. This is an intimate time. This is a private time for Jesus and his closest friends. And there is no servant. And if there is no servant, then who's going to wash everyone's feet before supper? Well, obviously, one of the twelve disciples should have done it. Maybe the youngest. 
whoever that would have been. But none of them is willing to do it. All of them are too proud. Uh, Luke tells us in his gospel and his in his account of this same event that just a few minutes before this, minutes before this, the disciples were arguing about what? About who is the greatest among them. Just seconds, minutes before this, they're walking down the road on the way to, to Jerusalem where their Lord is going to be crucified and they're arguing about who was the greatest. And that was not a new dispute with the disciples. It is the kind of argument they had many times. We read about it many times. In Matthew 18, it says that the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want him to settle it once and for all. Get the expert opinion. Lord God of the universe, tell us who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Me? In Mark 9, Jesus asked his disciples, as if he didn't know, what were you arguing about back on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. This is the kind of thing that's constantly going on. So here they are in the upper room. Everything's ready. The pitcher of water is there. The wash basin is there. The towel is there. The dinner is there. But no one lifts a finger. Each disciple sat there reclining at the table, hoping that someone else would make the first move. These men are exactly like most Christians in most churches in this country. Maybe even like most Christians in this church. They are looking out for their own interests. They are focused on one thing and it's consuming. They are looking to be served rather than to serve. Everything is read through that lens. And so, of course, no one does a thing. John tells us who who did make the first move. It's not John, it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not any of the others. It was Jesus. Why did He do that? Why did Jesus take the place of the lowliest slave? What enabled Him to do that? What, what was He thinking? What enabled Him to rise above the petty squabbling of these men who should have known better? What enabled Him and motivated Him to do it? John tells us. He actually tells us, this is an amazing few verses, because what John does is he tells us what Jesus is thinking. He actually lets us get a glimpse of the thought process of Jesus Christ as he stands up to do this. Look at what it says. It's at the beginning, the first, five, first three verses of, of this chapter. First of all, what he's thinking is, I'm about to die. Verse 1, we read that Jesus, knowing, this is getting a glimpse of what's inside of his head, this is what he's thinking, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about, he's thinking about his death. He knew that his time had come to die. And this is in his mind. This is on the front of his mind. We don't get the impression that this is a, um, 
that this is an, an ultimately troubling thought for him. He's not ultimately troubled by the prospect of his death because he knows the true nature of death. He knows that for him, death is nothing more than leaving this world and going to the Father. Think of that. Jesus knows that for him, the true nature of death is not annihilation. It's not an ending of of existence. Certainly not for him, eternal punishment under the wrath of God. What it is, is simply a change from living in this world to living with his Father in heaven. That is what death is. Leaving this world, going to be with his Father. So he's thinking about the nearness and the nature of his own death. What else is on his mind? Love is on his mind. Again, in verse 1, John says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In the past, he loved his disciples, and now he is going to love them to the uttermost. Love them to the end. Love them completely. Loving them to its utmost and fullest limit. There is nothing more that he will be able to do to love his disciples than what he's about to do. Not just washing their feet, but going all the way to the cross for them. And this statement about Jesus' love really forms the backdrop for the rest of the the whole Gospel of John. Everything else that Jesus does from this point out is directed by this ultimate love and is the working out of this ultimate love. The cross, the scourgings, the beatings, the mocking, the unfair trials, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the washing of the disciples' feet, all of that is done with this mode of absolute and complete love for His people. This is what's on His mind as He goes to wash the disciples' feet. He's thinking about His love for these men. What else? Jesus is thinking about his enemy. Verse 2. It says, During supper the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows that Satan has already entered the heart of this close friend. He knows exactly what Judas has already done and he knows exactly what he's going to do. His betrayer is sitting at the table with him, sharing in this intimate meal with him. Matthew, uh, in his Gospel, tells us that by this time, by the time of the Last Supper with his friends, In this world, Judas had already negotiated the price for Jesus' head. It was a done deal. He'd already been paid for it. Had the the money in his pocket. He had gone to the chief priests and he said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Name your price. I mean, he didn't even give them the price. He said, I'll do it for whatever you want to give me. You, you tell me. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. 
And it says from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. He was plotting and scheming. And now Judas is sitting here pretending to be his intimate friend. That should shake us, brothers and sisters. It should shake us. Are any of us Judases sitting here eating a meal with Jesus, but hating him in our hearts? Already planning and plotting how we will turn against him? Maybe even just in a matter of minutes or hours, planning on what we're going to do when we get out of here because that's what we really want to do? Already rejecting him in our hearts, maybe even sitting here this very moment thinking about rejecting his love, rejecting his authority, his holiness. Do not let the horror of Judas be lost on you. So Jesus knows full well what's going on in the heart of Judas. And yet, Jesus doesn't lash out at him. He doesn't defend himself. He is Almighty God in the flesh, but He does not destroy Judas with a word. In fact, instead of that, later on in John 13, we read that that Jesus actually gave Judas a place of honor at this feast. After John asked Jesus who it is that will betray Him, we read in verse 26, Jesus answered, and it had to have been some kind of a quiet answer because no one else knows what's going on but he's answering John who's the disciple that's leaning against Jesus' breast at the, at the dinner at the supper it's Jesus' best friend John asks Jesus because Peter wants to know he kind of motions to him get him to tell us who this is and evidently Jesus whispers in John's ear that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him And so when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. What does that mean? For the host of a dinner like this to dip, personally take a piece of bread, dip it into the dish of juice or whatever it is and hand it to a guest, that was a sign of honor for the guest. Special place, special privilege for the guest. It was an indication that the host was showing special favor to that person. And instead of wiping Judas out with his power, Jesus gives him the piece of bread. He gives him the piece of honor. Do you remember what Jesus says to him in the garden when Judas comes to betray him? Do you remember what he says? Judas comes up to him and kisses him. And Jesus says, Friend, do you betray me with a kiss? Even then, holding out mercy to him if he would take it. Jesus is in complete control of these events. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Satan had actually entered Judas' heart, that Judas was on the verge of handing him over to be killed. He knew that Judas thought that the precious blood of Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver to him. And he knew that. Even before he knelt to wash the feet of Judas himself, because he does wash Judas' feet, He knows his enemy. What else? 
What else is he thinking about? He knows his position of authority, absolute authority. Verse 3 begins with this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, not would give, but had given all things into his hands. He knows that God the Father has given him the supreme place of rulership and ownership and absolute authority over all of the universe. He knows that. God has already given that to him. And he's thinking about it. He's contemplating the fact that God the Father has given to me authority over all things. Everything is mine. This is what's in the front of his mind. From him and to him and through him are all things. He has the divine right to rule over everything. Nothing is outside of his realm of rule. And Jesus is fully aware of this high position of authority that the Father has given to him. He knows that he is the rightful object of the worship of the entire universe. He knows this. That he is the King of kings who deserves to be served by every creature that exists. There's one last thing that John tells us that Jesus is thinking. He knows who he is. The last part of verse 3 says Jesus knew that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He knows his position of authority, of authority and he knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he's going. He knows that he is God in the flesh. He knows that he and the Father are one. He had come from God. He is fully aware of the fact that he is God Almighty in the flesh. He knows that he is the one who spoke and the universe sprang into existence. He knows that he is God. Now, here's the point. What this passage is telling us is that Jesus was bearing all of that in mind. Knowing the true nature of death, knowing the love he had for his people, knowing who his enemy is and what his enemy is about to do, knowing his position of authority, knowing exactly who he is, bearing all of that in mind, what does he do? He serves. Look at verses 4 and 5. With all of that in mind, Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. What's he doing? He's clothing himself as a what? As a servant. Taking on the form of a bondservant. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, with which he was girded. Can you imagine? All of these men were in complete shock at what they were seeing. You get a little taste of that with Peter. All of the disciples are reclining around this table. They are all waiting for someone else to do the dirty job of foot washing. They're all so proud so stuck on themselves, so pleased with themselves, so afraid of losing their valued positions, even the valued position at the table that they're sitting at, that they don't even budge. 
and then when the meal has already begun. It's obvious that no one else intends to do this job. Jesus himself, the Master and Lord, stands up, strips down to his loincloth, wraps this linen cloth around his waist, walks over to the pitcher of water, pours the water into the wash basin, bends down and scrubs the filth of each man's, of each proud man's filthy feet and dries them off with the towel that is around his waist. This is not a quick job. This takes time. And the, the audacity of what he does sinks in and keeps sinking in. Their jaws had to have dropped. This man who knows he is the absolute authority over the universe, this man who knows he is God in the flesh, this king is doing the job of the lowest slave. Why did he do it? How did he do it? Why did he do the job of a slave? Why did he make himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant? Jesus did this act of humility because he knew all of the things that we've seen already. He knows the true nature of death. How, how can I be afraid? How can he be afraid of the abuse of men if death has no sting for him? He knew what love is. He knew what it meant to love his people to the uttermost until he could love them no more. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to die on the cross for them and take the wrath of God for them. Washing their feet was nothing compared to that. He knew his enemies. Well aware of what Judas is about to do to him, yet he washed his feet too. He knew his position of authority. He knew who he was. No hint, no shred of insecurity in Jesus Christ. He knows exactly who he is. And he was not out to prove his greatness. So he was able to humble himself. Look what he says, starting in verse 13. After he's done, he clothes himself again, he sits down, reclines back at the table, and he says to him in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am, Lord. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you, what? If you do them. How does all that apply to you and me? It's very, very simple. We must do as He did. How many of us think that we are actually 
greater than the master. Where can we find the strength and the humility and the love and the courage and the faith to lay down our lives for one another, not in grand, glorious, romantic, noble kind of things like taking a bullet or donating a kidney or whatever, but actually in the end glorify us. Where can we find the strength to do nasty, dirty, little things for each other? We will be able to lay down our lives with that same kind of selfless humility only if we keep in our minds the kinds of things that Jesus kept in His mind. You must be at peace about death. You don't have to worry about being stepped all all over because the worst thing that anyone can do to you is to kill you. And to die is to be with Christ. You don't have anything to protect. The worst they can do is kill you. You must love your brothers. We must love our brothers. The natural overflow of this new life that Christ has given us is love for our brothers. Act on that love. You, you must know your enemies. And you must know that your enemies cannot ultimately harm you. You can bless those who curse you, just like Jesus did. We have to know our identity, know our position. We don't have to worry about people taking advantage of us, or using us, or abusing us, or walking all over us. Because ultimately we know if you're a Christian, where you are, who you are. You really are, as Ephesians said, seated in Christ in the heavenly realms. Rich, beyond all imagination, a child of God. Nothing can change that. So my question for you is, do you actually believe any of that? Jesus was able to do these things because all of that was in the front of his mind. How often are these kinds of things in the front of our minds? If those kinds of thoughts are never in the front of your mind, then you will never obey this new commandment to love one another just as Christ loved us. And you will always be looking out for yourself and your own personal interests, and you will not obey God. If your view of yourself is consumer, the one to be served, the one to be entertained, the one to be loved, then you will never be able to do these things. Two thousand years ago, on this very night, Jesus Christ chose the path of humility and suffering and death for the sake of sinners like you and me. How do we respond to that? Let me close with these words from Philippians chapter 2. Paul, when he wrote these words, had to have had 
John 13 in mind when he wrote these words. He had to have been thinking exactly the words we've just read. Paul says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, wrapping that dress of a bondservant around his waist, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's the hope that you and I have. God is at work in you. Both to want to do this and to be able to do it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 13. This is how people will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, you'll shine. Because there's nothing like this in the world. Jesus said in John 13, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. May God give us grace to do as our Lord has done. Let's pray together.